And I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to the book of Isaiah once again, Old Testament book of Isaiah, and chapter 50 we are looking at this morning, chapter 50, page 1141, 1141 in your pew Bibles. And um, part of this text is seen as, again, one of the servant songs, the suffering servant we're going to actually read the, uh, the whole chapter um, because I think it just gives us some context for uh, the actual servant song. So the song begins in verse 4, uh, but we're going to begin with verse 1. Again, page 1141 in your pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 50. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment with moths, or the moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go Walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, back at the beginning of, of February, there was a little story in the news about an auto theft. 
um, in the Milwaukee area. A man had just washed his car. I don't know if it was at a car wash or a gas station, but he just washed his car. He got out and he was wiping it down, you know, like some people do. And while he was doing that, another car drove up and uh, the man was asking for directions. So while the first man was giving those directions, while he was distracted, somebody else jumped in his running car and drove off. What the auto thief did not know was that there were two little girls sitting in the back seat. He drove off when he discovered the two in the back. He stopped and he demanded that the little girl get out. There was an eight-year-old and a two-year-old. He demanded that the eight-year-old get out. She refused to do that. And so finally he abandoned the car and he ran off. Now they did a little interview with the eight-year-old who stayed in the car. And she said, when he yelled at me to get out of the car, I was really scared. I was really scared. But then I had to decide, she said. I had to decide if I was going to be a fraidy cat and run or stay and protect my little sister. And I decided I had to stay. I had to stay with my sister. Isaiah 50 says that the servant is like that little girl. And we, the people of Jesus, are called to be like the servant. Now, how do we get from, from here, from our text, to there, to that point of this little girl and the servant? Well, let's begin with sort of a big picture of, of this chapter. I think it's a, a little hard to understand, and I think giving us a little context might be helpful, but there is a contrast that's taking place here, right? It's, and it's a contrast between um, Israel, the people of God, and, and the servant, the servant of the Lord. And it's a contrast particularly in the areas of suffering and shame. Suffering and shame. It begins, the text begins, those first three verses, describing the suffering of, of Israel. Israel is suffering in captivity in Babylon. And then everything sort of narrows down and it focuses strictly on the servant. And the servant is also suffering. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's shamed. But what we need to notice is that there is a contrast going on between the two sufferings. Okay, there's a difference here. First of all, the suffering of Israel is something that they are blaming on the Lord their God. It's His fault that they are suffering in captivity. God has either abandoned them, He's let them down, He's too weak to protect them. Maybe it's all of the above, but whatever it is, it's His fault. It's His fault, they contend. But the truth of the matter is, and God makes it very clear in those first three verses, that Israel has not been abandoned by God, but she has been disobedient to God. He makes it very clear that their problem is due to their own way of living. Okay? And this goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, all right, where it says, Israel is ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving, okay? They listen, they hear, but they don't take it to heart. 
It doesn't sink in. And we find this, this verse sort of reverberating throughout Scripture. We even saw it in the last chapter of Acts. It's like, it's like this is a people who continually are in this mindset of, of being around the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, but never taking it to heart. They've been closed to God's commands. And that's why Israel is suffering in captivity. Not because the other nations are more powerful than their God. Not because God has forgotten her, but because she refuses to listen to Him. Now that's, that's one kind of suffering. But there is another kind of suffering that's going on here, and it's a little more difficult to wrap our heads around, and that's because it's, it's the suffering of the Lord's servant. And what's difficult to wrap our heads around is the servant suffers for exactly the opposite reason than Israel suffers. Israel suffers because she is not listening to God. The servant suffers because he does listen to God. Because he does listen to God. He suffers because our God is not the kind of God who will abandon his people. But our God is a God who is faithful to all people. To all people. You see, God will not abandon the weary the weary. And that word weary here in our text, it, it extends far beyond Israel. Okay, The weary are not just Israel. This goes back to chapter 42, where God, we saw, was committed to whom? To the bruised reed, to the floundering wick. And the servant says, I will bring you justice in a way that will not break you or extinguish you. A part of the weary are the bruised reeds. This goes back to, to Isaiah 49 that we talked about last week. God will bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, to all peoples, to all the weary, to every square inch of his creation that languishes in sin and brokenness. God will be faithful to all of them. And that's why the servant suffers. It's because he is obedient to a God who is so faithful that he will not abandon any of the weary. He is totally committed to bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, that sounds big. That sounds grandiose, doesn't it? But it's as close as the little two-year-old sitting next to you in the back of the car where God says, I will not Abandon you. This is why the servant suffers. And this is why we hear the servant proclaim that I have not been disgraced. I will not be disgraced. I will not be put to shame. Why? Because I have committed my life totally to the will of the Lord, to what he is doing, to his mission in this world. God is my vindication. The servant sees the Lord and what he is doing as one, so completely as one, that he says, if I am in tune with the Lord's mission, I am in tune with God. I cannot be put to shame. This will never appear like I have lived in vain. 
On the other hand, there's all sorts of shame that comes along with Israel's suffering, isn't there? I mean, this one who was God's plan, who is called to be a light to all of the nations, a light, and here she is living in the darkness of captivity to or in all the nations. She sits in shame that she is not fulfilling the mission given her by God. Now, that's sort of the big picture of what's going on here. Israel is suffering. Israel is in shame. Why? Because they have failed to hear. They have failed to listen. So what does God do? Does he get rid of his people? Does he abandon them? Does he leave them? No, he sends them a servant. A very specific kind of servant. A servant who will be the listener that Israel was not. Hey, look at verse 4 with me. It begins this way. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. An instructed tongue. And that verse ends with the words, He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. God provides a listener. The servant is one who listens even before he speaks. Even before he speaks. Now, what is an instructed one? What is one who is, is taught? The language here is that of a disciple. Okay, the, 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 the servant, excuse me, is a disciple of God. He's a learner. He's a listener. He's one that's being taught, being trained by God himself. And if this is a description of the servant, the servant in Isaiah, the servant that, that the New Testament keeps telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of, then let's ask ourselves the question, is this a good description of Jesus? I mean, if the servant is someone who is just immersed in God's Word, guided by God's Word, if he knows God's Word in every regard, is Jesus like that? Well, do you know of anyone else who thought more highly of God's Word than Jesus? Think about this, friends. If you read through the New Testament, how often do you read Jesus saying the words, it is written? It is written. I mean, Jesus knew the Word forward and backward, and He was always applying it to life. How many times didn't he say the same thing to his opponents, right? Did he say the same thing to his opponents? Is it not written? Does, does your, doesn't your own word say this? And remember when he was tempted in the wilderness by, by the devil, what did he keep coming back with? What did he keep coming back with? He would say, no, God didn't really say that. This is what's written. This is what's written. You got that wrong. This is what's written. Jesus knew God's Word. He was immersed in it. Jesus viewed His whole life, in fact, as a fulfillment of the Word of God. Fulfillment of that Word. When He begins His ministry in, in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, what does He say? He, he looks back to Isaiah and He quotes, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And then He says, Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
I am the fulfillment of Scripture, he says. And we see this again and again. Uh, We see this in his death, that he fulfills the Scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the shepherd? Jesus. And his disciples are the sheep. He saw his entire life through the eyes of Scripture. Again, at his death, he said, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He saw his death, his suffering, his resurrection, prophesied all of it ahead of time. Jesus was the fulfillment. And what did Jesus say when he was dying on the cross with his last breath? Lord, why have you forsaken me? The words of Psalm 22, he took God's word onto his mouth, there on the cross, onto his lips, onto his tongue. It was like Jesus bled Scripture itself. Scripture was his authority. Everything. Jesus kept going back to Scripture. When, when people were asking him about the meaning of marriage and divorce and all of that, what does Jesus say? He says, have you not heard? That in the beginning, God created them male and female. And he goes on, this is my authority, Jesus says. This is our authority. It's the word of God. There was no one, friends, who was not more permeated with the word of God than Jesus Christ himself. But now let's flip back to Isaiah again. Because what Isaiah tells us is that listening and learning is not an end in itself. And, and, and that's something we have to make sure that we understand. Because we have sort of become a culture where listening and learning is sort of an end to itself. Right? And maybe that's true when you go to a concert, when you go to hear Taylor Swift or Kenny Chesney or something, and we just take in what we're hearing and we enjoy it and that sort of thing. But God's Word is not like that. That's not an end in itself, okay? The sovereign Lord, says the servant, has given me an instructed tongue to what? To know the word that sustains the weary. To know the word that sustains the weary. The servant listens in order to speak. In order to speak a word to the weary. And not just any kind of word. It's a word that consoles. It's a word that heals. It's a word that encourages. It's a word that forgives. Was that Jesus? Was Jesus someone who not only heard the word, but then spoke it? God's word was always pushing Jesus, was always funneling Jesus where was always pushing him toward who? The sick, the broken, the lame, the lonely, right? The discouraged, the hopeless, the blind. The Word of God pushed Jesus to the, the Samaritans and the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, to the mother who lost a young son, to the Samaritan woman at the well. It was always pushing Jesus where? To the weary. Exactly to the weary. I just had the opportunity to um, hear from David Smith at Calvin University, and um, while he spoke, he he told the story about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he said, you know, when we in the West hear that story, we make it all about the woman and her problems, her issues, her way of living. After all, she had five husbands, and the man that she is living with now is not her husband. And we think, wow, it's kind of a loose living woman. And, and he went on to say that he had found, um, in, in some of his reading, he stumbled across um, a commentator who was a female from, I think, the country of India. And when she first read the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, she said, she said, ah, I recognize that story. Here's a woman who has been married and then tossed aside and married and tossed aside and married and tossed aside. And the man who's with her now won't even do her the dignity of marrying her. And that was the life that, that she was used to. That was the life that, that even the scriptures talk about. You know, Moses, uh, the, the Sadducees point to the fact that Moses offered a, a certificate of divorce. Divorce is okay. And, um, and actually how that read, some of the teachers of Israel had gotten so far to say that, that if a man had any cause to divorce his wife, even if she disappointed him in whatever way. If she burnt the toast for breakfast, he could divorce her. And that's the kind of situation this woman saw here. That here's an example of someone who's just tossed aside and has no power to do anything about it. Now, the point I want to make here is that whether this woman is a victim of someone else's sin or whether she's a victim of her own sin. The point is the same either way. She's weary. And she's exactly the kind of person that Jesus makes his way toward, that he's always bumping up against, that he's always interacting with. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound like someone who was just immersed in the Word of God? But listening is, is not just about the ear either. It's about the will and it's about our actions. Verse 5, The sovereign Lord opened my ears, says the servant, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. When the Lord opens our ears, it's not just about hearing, it's about how we respond. The servant doesn't rebel. The servant doesn't object to what he hears. He doesn't object to what God says. As hard as it may be to accept the word that he gets from God, he does not rebel. And friends, this is so important for people, again, like us to hear. Because we are the kind of people who so often like to place ourselves above God's word. What I mean is we kind of say, well, 
you know, I, I agree with A and I agree with B and I agree with C, but I, I'm not so sure about D. I, I just can't go along with that. I, I don't think God would have ever said something like that. What are we doing in instances like that? We're placing ourselves above God's Word. And that kind of thing goes all the way back in history. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis 3. Remember where Adam and Eve kind of said, you know, I just, I just, I don't, I can't imagine that God would really care what tree we eat from. I can't imagine. Why would God care about that? That was the original sin, friends. The original sin was not lust, like so many artists want to tell us. It was not murder. It was not greed. It was putting ourselves in God's place and saying we know better. And we do it all the time. All the time. We say, well, I get, I get that this might be idolatry, and I, I get that that might be idolatry, but not this. <laughs> Come on. Friends, this is what verses 10 and 11 are all about. Let him who walks in the darkness trust in the Lord. What he's saying there is, you know, when you're lost and you don't have light and you're wandering, don't light your own torches. Don't try to create your own truth. Go back to the truth of our God. Trust in his word. It's good. It's life. I love, I love what the text says in verse 4. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Every morning. Imagine, this was the servant. Every morning, listening to what the Lord had to say next. This was Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of life? Every morning, just waiting to hear what the Lord says next. Is that your life? If, if Jesus needed that, how do you think we can survive without that kind of attitude? Jesus was immersed in it. He did not rebel against it. And when he finally came to that point in his life, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? He said, not my will be done, Lord, but yours. The second way the Lord teaches us to respond is with our actions. The servant says, I have not drawn back. In other words, I wasn't afraid. I didn't take evasive actions. I didn't run away. What I did, in fact, was I offered myself up. I willingly went into the trouble. Okay? I offered my back to those who beat me, he says. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking and the spitting. I went into this with eyes wide open. I went into this willingly. Eric Mottier says there are three things going on here. Jesus suffered the judicial act of flogging. He was... There was a legal judgment against him. He suffered the gratuitous torture of those around him. 
and personal humiliation. They pulled out his beard. You know, when I hear those words here, here in the West, I, I just think of dull razors and how they kind of yank the whiskers from your face instead of cutting them. I just think of the pain aspect of that. But, but then you think, we're talking about Middle Eastern people here. In, Middle, in the Middle East, a beard is a source of pride. It's, it's community pride. And to have your beard yanked out is a source of shame. You're being shamed. You're being humiliated. There was an old episode of MASH, uh, maybe some of you remember it, where I think it was a Puerto Rican soldier came in and uh, he had taken some shrapnel to his head and, and so to, to do surgery they had to shave off his mustache and when he got into um, um, the aftercare he was more worried about the fact that he didn't have his mustache anymore than the fact that he had taken a head injury. He was so embarrassed, okay? And that's what we're talking about here. He's inflicted with shame. He's humiliated. This is what we read about in Mark. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, they said, prophesy. Mark 15, the soldiers put a purple robe on him and they twisted together a, a crown of thorns and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And all of that Jesus took on willingly. There's debate of how, this, how these things fit so well together, kind of hand in glove, right? Those who don't believe in prophecy at all they say that what happened is the people who wrote the New Testament, they studied the prophecies and then what they did is they took all of the facts or they took, you know, the story of Jesus' life and they just made it fit all of the prophecies. They didn't believe in prophecy at all. It was all manipulated by human beings. And there's a, another way of looking at things that Jesus just sort of blindly fulfills prophecy, right? It's all, it's all out of his control, but God just kind of worked it out so that all the prophecies were fulfilled. And then there's the view that... Then there's the view that the Word of God, including all of these prophecies in Isaiah were so deeply ingrained in Jesus' mind and in his heart that he very consciously walked right into the suffering that was waiting for him. In order to fulfill the scripture, to live out the life of the servant. Verse 7 says, I set my face like flint Flint is the hardest rock. There's no turning back. Luke, in his gospel, in chapter 9, verse 51, uses that phrase as Jesus sets out for his final trip to Jerusalem. There's no turning back. He knows what's ahead, 
and yet he enters into it willingly. Jesus chose his path. Just like that little eight-year-old girl, he said, I wasn't going to be a fraidy cat. I was going to help my little sister. This is the word that was in Jesus. It was a word to help the weary. And it permeated Jesus' imagination, his thinking. It guided his every choice. This is a word that Jesus hears and he speaks and he lives. And we are servants of this servant. This servant. Is that how the word functions in your life? Do you hear it? Do you take it into your heart where it sits for a while and it gives you hope and it gives you assurance and it gives you courage? And then do you act in that courage? We saw a video earlier of our brother, Bashaya from Nigeria. As we were putting that together uh, this week, you, you hear those words over and over. And did, you, did you hear what he said? Just in case, in case you didn't, he said, God helped me get his word in my head, come into my heart, and into my practical everyday life. The word comes in through the ears. It goes to the heart where it is believed. And then into the practical everyday life in our actions. Shia told the story of a situation in which one of his friends from the church had been kidnapped. And it was up to him to go and pay the ransom. And so he was supposed to meet the kidnappers in the jungle and he was supposed to pay the ransom. And he said, I didn't know if I was going to come back or if I wasn't. I was scared. I was afraid. How do you get through something like that? He said, the word of God was in me. And he quotes Esther, going before the king, if I live, I live. If I perish, I perish. He quoted the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the furnace. He said, if God wants to save me, he can and he will. He doesn't have to, but if he wants to, he will. And he did not draw back. He went into the jungle. He was not afraid he cat. He was not a fraidy cat because he knew that he would not be put to shame. He understood that he had been chosen to bring a word to the weary. He understood because Jesus had first brought that word to him when he was weary. He said, if we believe the Jesus we follow and what he said in his word is true, 
then it means that every believer should be looking forward to the day he goes to heaven with joy. And one of the doorways to heaven is death. So why should we be afraid of death? This is the record, he said. We have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. You see, just like the servant, friends, we can be so sure of God's will, so sure of God's character, so sure of His promises that we can even be willing to suffer for the weary, trusting that we will never, ever be put to shame. Our efforts will never be in vain. And this, friends, this is how we, the people of the servant, differ from those people who were languishing in captivity in Babylon. God came to us, to you and me, in the person of the servant, and he gave rest to the weary on the cross. And now, it's the rested weary who live by his power for a weary world. We are people who keep looking at their little sister next to us, there in the car, and we say, I'm not going to be a fraidy cat because my life is safe with Jesus and I'm going to live that life for him. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have purchased our life our lives by the power of the cross. Now help us live our lives by the power of the cross. In your name we pray, amen.